Okay, so now we come to one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It's uh, Zechariah chapter 3. And the reason why it just resonates with me so much is that um, this is such a perfect picture of, of God's redemption. Um, what we're going to see here, of course, you know the background if you listen to the previous um, two chapters of Zechariah, but the people are returning, the people have, have returned and are building, uh, building the city. Of course, they returned in waves, so there were still some in captivity and there were, you know, there were still some uh, building. And, of course, Zechariah and Haggai were prophesying to the people, telling them, you know, to um, to turn their hearts back to the Lord. Don't fall into the same idolatry and the same uh, laziness that that caused their fathers to go off into exile in the first place, and and uh, all that's going on. And uh, while this is happening, the temple's being rebuilt, and God's people are being reestablished in the land. And God has promised, you know, I will. I will, if you will turn to me, I will turn to you and I'll come and I'll dwell among you. And he gives them all these promises that, you know, the New Testament writers pick up on in the New Testament that uh, uh, being fulfilled in Christ. And what we're going to see here, uh, what we're going to see here is God's, uh, well, it's God, the redemption of God's servant. But it is uh, perhaps... uh, one of the most clearest pictures in the Old Testament of the salvation that God offers and the perfect redemption of the gospel uh, through Jesus Christ. And it even toward the end of the chapter, we'll read it. It's only 10 verses, chapter 3. And so we'll, uh, we'll read it and we'll see that toward the end of the chapter, he, God even explains that this, all that he is promising here, all that he's doing here is on the basis of the Messiah that he will send uh, one day in the future from from Joshua and Zechariah's point of view. And so what we're going to see here is that the servant's sin is is remo- removed. Uh, it's, a, it's a courtroom scene that is so vivid. It's Zechariah has this vision of a courtroom. And in the courtroom, uh, we have Joshua, who is the high priest of the people who have returned to the land. Uh, he is the religious and spiritual leader. Uh, and another man, Zerubbabel, is, uh, he is the, you know, the, the uh, political leader, governor, so to speak. And so chapters 1 and 2 of Zechariah spoke of the perfection that Jerusalem will be, what the perfect Jerusalem will be like when it, uh, when it finally comes and God's kingdom is fulfilled. Uh, it speaks of uh, uh, admonishing the people to turn to God and to and to come return to Him, uh, and it's all about the people and all about the Jerusalem and uh, Israel. Uh, in, in chapter three, in chapter four, it's Zechariah is going to turn the focus. His visions are going to are going to focus in on the two leaders of the people. The first here is Joshua, the high priest, and the second is going to be in chapter 4, it's going to be Zerubbabel. And so uh, what we're going to see here is that uh, Joshua stands in the courtroom of God, and Joshua is the uh, Joshua is the the the, uh, the accused, and he is standing he's standing on trial before God. And in order for Joshua to be the high priest, in order for Joshua to be the man of God, in order for him to be 
uh, able to intercede for the people. And that's what the high priest did was he, he came in and offered sacrifice on behalf of the people to cleanse them from their sin in order for him to, to do the work, in order for him to be the high priest. Uh, he had to be holy. Uh, he had to be clean before God. He had to be pure. And what we're going to see is that he is nothing of the sort. And so he's standing in a courtroom, and uh, God is the judge. He's standing at the judgment bar of God. God's rendering judgment upon Joshua. And then standing on his right, we have the uh, the prosecuting attorney, so to speak, and that's, that's Satan. And Satan is accusing uh, Joshua before the Lord. And you can imagine what kind of accusations he's bringing. Uh, we'll get to that as we, as we go. But, um, what we're going to see here is, is, it's just a, a perfect, beautiful picture of God's redemption and the salvation that he offers in Christ. It says, <clears throat> verse one says, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Uh, resist should be accuse him. That's, I'm reading out of the, if I switch over, there it is, to accuse him. And it's basically the same thing. He's standing against him to accuse him, to resist him. And the Lord said to Satan, in verse 2, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, you have Joshua standing here. And he's being accused of all kind of things. Who knows what? Who knows what uh, he's being accused of? I'm sure Satan is standing there, going, "Look at this guy. He is not. He's not fit to be your priest. He's not fit to be your man." And if we look in verse three to give you, a, let me just go ahead and read verse three. We find out that Satan's accusations are true. He's not lying. He's not standing before God lying about Joshua and lying about who he is and what kind of person he is. And, and Joshua here is standing as a representative of all the people. And so basically Satan is here going, you know, you cannot, he's talking to God, you cannot show your favor on these people uh, and still claim to be a holy and just God. Uh, there is no way. I mean, it's it's beyond the imagination for you to for you to be holy and just, and just wink your eyes at all this all this sin. Wink your eyes at who these people are. Verse three says, "Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the Lord. Everything Satan was saying was true. Joshua was indeed impure." He was indeed not holy. He was indeed not worthy to be the high priest, not worthy to go in before the Lord. You know, the um, most of us have heard uh, or read sermons or, or teachings about how the high priest would go into the holiest of holies uh, during Yom Kippur, and he would, uh, if 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 he had not properly atoned for his sin through sacrifice, uh, he would die, and they would have to pull him out. You know, because you cannot be in God's presence with sin. And so here stands Joshua, this high priest or supposed high priest, and he's standing in unclean, filthy garments. And Satan is all too eager to accuse. He's all too eager to remind. And the thing that uh, the thing that uh, it, it stands at the forefront of my mind is that the things that Satan is saying are true. They're, they're true. Joshua is unworthy. You and I are unworthy. You and I are 
sinful. You and I are utterly wretched. There is no goodness. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, there is no goodness in us whatsoever. There is no goodness in my flesh. That's what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 7. And so what we see here is that, uh, you know, it, it, it'd be kind of foolish for Satan to lie about Joshua to God, who's standing right there at the judgment bar. I mean, God, who's omniscient, would know Satan, you're lying. I mean, he would say, you know, hey, that's not true, you know. And, and But the thing that God does, the thing that the, the angel of the Lord uh, does, it's the Lord that says, but it's the angel of the Lord. Uh, and we've seen earlier in chapter 2 that that's the Father and the Son. Uh, the 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 thing that uh the thing that really strikes me about this passage is that Joshua first of all never speaks he never says a word he stands there i'm sure he knows good and well he's standing i mean he knows good and well he is he is guilty as the day is long and he has no defense he has no nothing that he can say he has i mean absolutely nothing it's almost as he's just standing there waiting for his condemnation but also the Lord does not, um, he doesn't negotiate with Satan. He doesn't try to defend Joshua. The Lord doesn't. He doesn't try to say, well, now, come on, Satan, jo Joshua's not that bad. He's not that bad a guy. He's, he, you know, he's had some problems and he's done, you know, done some bad things. And, you know, he's, he's standing as a representative of my people here. And, you know, I, I, my people have... They've had a hard life, you know, they've had a hard road to hoe, and, and I've, uh, you know, I've sent them into captivity, and they're just getting back after 70 years, you just gotta give them a break. God doesn't do any of that whatsoever. He doesn't, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he turns to Satan, and he says, shut up. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, in, in verse 2. And this is why, this is why he can say that, uh, this is why he can choose Joshua. This is why he can allow Joshua uh, to be holy. We're going to see here in a minute that God himself is going to make Joshua holy. But he says, "Say indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And then he says, is, not, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And what he's saying is, look, haven't I, aren't I the one who brought him back? from this captivity aren't i the one who i'm the one who passes judgment i'm the one who brings judgment down on the heads of sinners uh is this is this man here standing before you isn't he just a man that i myself have plucked out of the fire i myself have have, have brought him out of out of judgment i myself am the one who picked him up out of the mess that he was in and he rebukes satan and what we see, I know I've already said this, but in chapter, th in verse 3, is that that Satan's accusations were true. It says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the Lord, and these filthy garments were sin. It was sin and transgression. And I know that because verse 4 says, He spoke and he said to those, this is God who's speaking, He spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, to Joshua, he said, see, I have taken away your iniquity. I've taken away iniquity. I've taken your iniquity away from you, excuse me, and will clothe you with festal robes. It says festal robes. It's, it's pure garments. It's white raiments. It's, it's the same, the same robes we see presented to us in Revelation where, 
John says that uh, the, you know they'll be given uh, white robes and stand before him in white robes. And so what, what, what you see here is God is God says, look, he is a sinner. Yeah, I got you. I got you. He's looking at Satan going, look, shut up, man. I, everything that you're saying, I already know that. But this is what's going to happen. He's going he's gonna to say, I want you. And notice he doesn't tell Joshua. Joshua, take off your filthy garments and put on these garments that I'm going to give you. He he tells those that stand before him, more than likely the heavenly host here, he's telling them, I want you to take off those filthy garments. And I want, and I am going to clothe you with these pure garments. Uh, it says, see, I have taken away from you iniquity and will clothe you with these with these pure raiments, these pure garments. What does Joshua do in all of this? He does absolutely nothing. He just stands there. I can imagine that he is I mean, you just play place yourself uh however good you think you are, however bad you think you are, place yourself at the judgment bar of God right now and uh Honestly, look and say, if God were to look at me and my heart and my mind and my thoughts and my deeds and everything that I am for the last week, would he say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or would he say, depart from me? My goodness, look at all this iniquity. Uh, outside of Christ, he would say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, because I never knew you. But here, here. Joshua is probably feeling the same, the same weight, the same uh, fear, the same uh, animus as he's just before the king of kings and, and Zechariah is seeing all these things. And, and, and so he says, I am going to do this. I am going to remove all your transgression, all your iniquity. I'm going to take it away from you. And then I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give you the proper attire to stand before me. I'm going to give you the proper clothes to wear before me so that you are pure and that you are holy. And then verse 5, uh, it, it's actually kind of funny. I, it's Zechariah speaking out of nowhere. It's like Zechariah is looking at this vision. He's seeing this vision of Joshua standing before the court and Satan just accusing him and all these things and 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 looking at Joshua's filthy garments and just he's he's covered in excrement and that's if you look at the 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 uh, etymology of the Hebrew word it's 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 that foul it is. It's more than I can even say. It's it's not just a stain or two here, a stain or two there. He is utterly and completely defiled and nasty. Uh, and so he's seeing all this, and, and then he hears God say, you know what, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come, and I'm going to take away all that iniquity. I'm going to remove those filthy garments off you. I'm going to give you pure garments to wear. I'm going to take away your iniquity, and I'm going to put my righteousness on you. And verse 5 it says, then I said, and this is Zechariah, like watching this scene piping up. I mean, it's almost like he's a cheering section. He gets so excited. He gets so happy. He says, he says, then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't forget the turban. 
I mean, he's over there with his hands raised up going, yes, yes, like he's at a football game or something going, don't forget to put the turban on his head. And, and the, of course, modern day people, we probably don't, you know, know much about the turban, but the turban, the, the miter, or as it's called in, in, in other translations, uh, it, it was part of the high priest's dress. It was part of his outfit. It was, it was inscribed with the words, and you can read this in Ezekiel, I mean, not Ezekiel, Exodus 28, uh, verses 36 through 37, and then again in Exodus 39, uh, 30 through 31, uh, the, the mitre, the turban that was put upon the head of the high priest was inscribed with an inscription that said, Holy to the Lord. And so Zechariah just joined in the scene calling for this because um, it, it, it symbolized Israel's purity in a place uh, their place was with God was restored. Uh, he was saying, he was saying, when you when you when you put on those garments of him, you know the, that turban symbolized the the mitre symbolized the fact that he is now holy to the Lord. He is no longer seen in filthy garments. He is no longer seen, you know, as the accuser would uh, would want him to see. And it is God Himself who is providing these new clothes. It's God Himself who is providing the righteousness that Joshua needs. And if that's not a perfect picture of the salvation that God offers uh, us in Christ Jesus, I, I don't know what is. Because we too stand before the judgment bar of God. We too have an accuser. You know, Revelation says that that uh, that He stands before. Uh, before God accusing the brethren day and night. We, we too have an accuser. Even in our own minds, the accuser is whispering in our ears saying, you're not good enough for this and you're not doing that right and you're not doing this right and you're never going to be, you're never going to make anything of yourself this way and how can God possibly be proud of you? How could God possibly love you? How, you know, you, you, all these people look around how holy everybody is around you. You're just awful. You're, na you're nasty clothed in, in filthy garments and all those things. The accuser is busy at work. He's doing his job, but the gospel tells us that God himself says, the Lord rebuke you. God himself says, this is what I'm going to do. You're a brand that has been plucked out of the fire by me. Therefore, I am going to remove those filthy garments from you, and I am going to provide you with righteous white garments, with pure garments, and then you'll be able to stand before me in perfection. You will be holy to the Lord. It's not just the fact that, you know, it's not just the fact that, you know, I'm going to kind of deal with you. This is what God would say. I'm going to kind of deal with you, you know, but if you slip up now, you, you can go too far, you know, then we're going to have to reevaluate. We're going to have to renegotiate. It's not that at all. When God looks at Joshua, when he is taken away that iniquity and he is put on those robes of, of absolute perfection and righteousness, he is holy to the Lord. He is perfect before the Lord. And so the end of verse five says, so after Zechariah pops up and says, you know, let's put a, put a clean miter on his head. Let's put a turban on his head. Uh, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by the angel of the Lord. You remember we talked about that last time, every time 
almost every time. There are a few exceptions. There are a few, you know, places where we can dispute it. But almost every time you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's pre-incarnate Christ. It's the it's the messenger of the Lord. It's the one who appeared in the burning bush with Moses. It said, uh, uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared in a burning bush, and the angel of the Lord spoke and said, I am that I am. And so he speaks with the authority of God. And, and, and then what we need to see is so... At this point, Joshua is perfect. At this point, the believer is perfect. There is no sin on his account. There is nothing but white garments. There's nothing but white raiment. There is no more transgression. There is no more filth. There is no more accusations that uh, hold any weight with God. And so uh, verse 6 says, now that this is accomplished, now that this is done, understand that this never happens this righteousness never happens. This this redemption never happens without God also giving a task to the person who's been redeemed. You and I have been redeemed not just to sit on our hands and say, "Well, I've got my ticket punched to heaven, and yay, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know go be in the clouds in the sky, and I'm gonna sit on my hands here until uh, until that is accomplished." That is not. The Christian life. That is not the regenerated heart. The heart that has been regenerated desires nothing more than to serve God. Yes, it can fail. Yes, we can do stupid things. Yes, we can do utterly sinful things. But God promised that he would change the hearts of those whom he redeems. He would change the hearts of those whom he justifies. And so it comes with a task. And verse 6, uh, 6 to 7, he, he spells out that task. It says, And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways and you perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among these who are standing here. Now, understand what he's saying. Joshua is the high priest. But Joshua is not qualified to be the high priest. And so he's saying, look, now that you've been redeemed, he says, if you will take up the mantle of my, of my service, I will make you, I will make you fit, if lack of a better word, to perform my service. I'll make you fit to govern my house. I'll make you fit to have charge of my, of my courts. And all he says is, it, that you, you you just need to walk in my ways and perform my service. Follow me is what he's saying. Just like when the Holy Spirit enters into you and I, we are led by the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you can, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, you can walk off in another direction, but God will come and, and, and discipline you. Uh, Romans 8, I think it is. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but it, there is a passage there that says that, uh, those that are not led by the spirit, they're, they're not, if any man be not led by the spirit, he is not a son of God. I wonder if I can look it up real quick without, uh, uh, taking too much time away from, from here. What he's saying is if you, if you, if you will walk in my ways and you will perform my service, 
then yeah, verse Romans eight. Look at there, I got it right on time. Eight fourteen. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So don't tell me that you're not being led by the Spirit of God, and but you are a son of God. That directly violates what Paul said in Romans. So what he's saying here is now that you've been changed, now that you've been clothed in new garments, now that you've been made perfect, if you'll just walk in my ways, if you'll perform my service, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. Walk in my ways. Set out heading toward my ways and walk in them. You perform my service, then, then you'll govern my house and you'll have charge of my courts. He's saying, you will be an ambassador for me. You will be the high priest for me. He's telling Joshua, I will allow you entry into my presence and you will be able to make intercession for the people that you're supposed to be interceding for. Now, of course, we know that you know we're we're a kingdom of priests as New Testament believers, and we no longer need a high priest. Jesus Christ is our high priest, but He has given us through Him, through Christ, free access to God. Romans chapter five says, uh, "Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, whereby we gain access into the grace in which we now stand." We have that access. He's given him this command. You walk in my service and perform my service, and then the promise is made. You will have access. You will have charge of my courts. You will you will be able to govern my house. Uh, and this is this is Joshua's interceding ministry before God. Now, if you're if you're Satan, or if you're Joshua, I mean, if you're Joshua or you're Satan, and you're standing there. The first thing that comes to my mind is, well, that's not fair. I mean, how can you be a just God? How can you be righteous and perfect in your justice and just take off this guy's sin? How can you do that and and just give him righteousness? That's not fair. Uh, he's supposed to pay for his sin. You can't, it'd be like a judge in a courtroom, you know, and I've used this illustration many times before. If, if someone, let's say, broke in your house or, or, or did something awful to your family and murdered them or, or just whatever, just somebody sinned against you, committed a crime against you, and you go into the courtroom, they've been captured, and here they sit uh, at the defendant's table, and the judge walks out and says, you know what? I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to let you go because I, I feel pretty loving today. I feel like a forgiving God, uh, a forgiving judge, and uh, I think I'm just going to do away with all the charges against you, and I'm just going to uh, give you a blank slate, make you pure as the driven snow, and send you on out the door. If you're in the courtroom and you're the one who's been sinned against, how would that make you feel? Would you Would you be happy about that? No, that would send you reeling. It would send you screaming for justice. And you would be right to do so. Because that is not justice. That's not right. It's not fair. And all those things are true. And so, as as I can hear, you know, Joshua's probably thinking, wow, this is too good to be true. And Satan's going, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's not fair. How can you call yourself just? How can you call yourself righteous when you're letting sinners go free all over the place? That that it doesn't make any sense. Who's paying for all this sin? Who's paying for all this iniquity? How is you? How is he just taking away? 
his filthy garments and then all of a sudden, whoo, poof, he's given righteous garments. That's not fair. That's not, that's not the way a just God operates. Verse 8 says, Now listen, Joshua, the high priest. This is God speaking again. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are assembled. For behold, I am going. This is how he's going. This is how God can be both just and the justifier of sinners. He says, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Now, when you see the branch, you're thinking, uh, I don't really understand. The branch is Christ. Uh, Christ is pictured as a branch in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. Zechariah 6. We'll see him later on in this book. He is the branch. I'm going to bring a branch from the root of Jesse. You know, you, you, you see those throughout the Old Testament. In all the prophets, he's called the branch. I'm going to bring forth my Messiah. He's, God is telling him here how he can remove Joshua's filthy garments, provide him with righteous garments so he'd be holy before the Lord, but still be just and perfect in his judgments. And it says, for behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone or seven eyes, it means omniscience, behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord on this stone. It says, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. I'm going to bring forth my Messiah, my branch, my Christ, my anointed one, and I am going to bring him forth. I'm going to, I'm going to, he'll be a stone. He's, we've seen that in, in Isaiah and other prophets where he's the stone that the, the, the builders rejected. He's a stone that is either a stepping stone for you or he, he, he crushes you under the weight of his stone. He says, and I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says, and I will remove iniquity in one day. A lot of people ask me, it's a very common question. A lot of people ask me how the Old Testament believers were saved when Jesus didn't come until, you know, we didn't die on the cross until 30, 33 BC or AD, excuse me. How did, how did, how were they saved? And, and the common the common misconception is that they were saved in a different way than we are. But it's always been by grace through faith, and it's always been through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Joshua, this is a picture of salvation that God gives us as Joshua is redeemed and sin is removed and righteousness is given. But Joshua is told here, he's, God is saying, look, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for my people. I'm doing this for the remnant who trust in me. But it doesn't mean that I'm unjust. It doesn't mean that I don't punish sin. And it doesn't mean that um, I am an unfair judge. But there is coming a day when I am going to send forth my son, my Messiah, my branch. And in that day, I'm going to remove iniquity once for all. And I'm going to do it in a single day. And that was the day that... Uh, that Christ died and God's wrath was poured out upon him. So understand that Joshua was told, Zechariah was told back here in way back in the Old Testament. I'm 
uh, unsure of the date, but it's in the 500 BC range, somewhere around there. Uh, he's told 500 years before it happened, at least 500 before it happened. He says, look, I'm going to remove your iniquity and I'm going to give you righteous garments. Uh, but I'm doing that on the basis of what I'm going to do uh, at Calvary in Jerusalem, outside of the city, on a day far away from now, when I'm going to come and I'm going to take on the sin of the world and I'm going to pour all my wrath out for sin on my own son. He said, I'm forgiving you now. I'm giving you righteousness now. But it's based on what I'm going to do in the future. And in the same way, we as New Testament believers, when you come to Christ, he says, look, I'm forgiving you now. I'm giving you righteousness now. I'm justifying you and making you perfect in my sight before now, but it's based on what I did 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem on a hill where, where my son died and I poured my wrath upon him. And so they looked forward to the coming of this branch, this Messiah, where we look back to the, the fulfillment where he, where he came. And then it says, verse 10, what happens? What happens in this? Um, this, a lot of people ask about the seven eyes. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, commentaries on what it might or might not be. Uh, we just don't know exactly for sure. But uh, when the the phrase seven eyes is used, it's usually symbolic of divine omniscience and dominion. You know, one or both of those. Uh, Zechariah one, it's used. We've seen it. It's going to be used again in Zechariah four. Uh, it's going. It's used in Second Chronicles sixteen. Um, and so, what we see is here is one that comes with power, one that comes with all knowledge, one that comes with dominion. And the inscription. Sometimes folks ask about that. The inscriptions were common, you know, uh, on ancient Near Eastern cornerstones. Like if there was a cornerstone in a in a structure, there was always an inscription. And the inscription speaks of the redemption achieved, you know, by the by the divine resident of the temple, you know, himself, the Messiah, who would come and in one day, uh, the Lord would bring salvation, salvation to all. Uh, and the last the last verse, verse ten. When that happens, when that happens, when when sin is removed and taken away, um, it says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Now, you probably ain't got a vine or a fig tree in your backyard. And if you did, I don't know if you'd invite your neighbor to come hang out under it. it like, that would be something fun. But the 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 imagery of, of fellowship under the vine and under the fig tree it uh, the the vine and the fig tree were symbols of uh, peace and prosperity and and joy and and happiness in the people of Israel and uh, it it describes what it's saying here is that it's describing the peaceful dominion uh, that the Lord is going to have. There's going to come a day, Ze- uh, Zechariah is showing us, and the Lord is speaking to Joshua. There's going to come a day when when I take away the sin of the land, when I take away sin in one day and it's all gone, there will be nothing but peace. There will be nothing but uh, but joy in the in the sense that you have peace with God, that you can come into the presence of God, that you can come into 
joyous relationship with God. And what you're going to want to do, because it's so wonderful, because it's so, uh, I want to say life-changing, but salvation itself is life-changing. It's not something that you're going to be able to keep to yourself. You're going to go out and you're going to invite your neighbor to come and sit under this vine. You're going to go out and you're going to invite your you know your friends and your family to come and, and sit under this vine and you're going to you're going to proclaim that uh redemption that uh that Christ has offered. Uh there's a couple of things that we can take applying this to our life. Uh, it is such a beautiful picture. I uh I mean there's so much in here. Um but even today as if you're a believer you still have an accuser. He accuses day and night. He never stops. And he can accuse all day long before God. But you notice what God tells him? Look, just shut up. That's the same thing we need to learn to tell him. Because we live with a gospel mindset. That's the biggest problem that believers have. And I've got... <clears throat> Two books and one another book coming out uh, here shortly about loving people with a gospel-centered mindset. The biggest problem that we have is we don't have a gospel-centered focus. Everything that we see in life should be filtered through the gospel. And it would solve so many of our problems. It would solve so many of our problems. I'm not saying you'd never suffer again. I'm not saying that the world's not a fallen world. Not those kind of problems. What I'm talking about is things that we deal with in Christian living, how we have to fight for every inch. We have to fight to stay out of the of um, despondency and depression and despair and and all these things and then you have satan who's continually accusing you in your mind you're not good enough you're not worthy you're not whatever you you messed up bad yesterday i mean you messed up bad and how could god love you how could god uh say well done to you you haven't done near what you're supposed to be doing. You haven't done hardly anything. You're not doing half of what you know Joe down the road is doing. Uh, who do you think you are to claim that you're perfect in Christ? Well, the gospel, through the gospel, the perfection that Jesus offered, the Lord would look at Satan as you stand in the courtroom and say, look, shut up. The Lord rebuke you. He says, this, this man right here, he is a brand that has been plucked out of the fire by me. And what I did for him was I took off his filthy garments and I put on righteous robes. So now here he is standing in the courtroom with righteousness exuding from him with righteousness all over. Him. Not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so there is no accusation that can carry weight. There is no accusation that gains traction in your life or the life of, of those who are in Christ. The real question that you have to ask, the only question that matters, is am I in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, there is no accusation that can stick. The Lord looks at Satan every time and says, just shut up, man. You don't have a basis for accusing him. This is one that I've chosen. This is one that I've plucked out of the fire. I've given him raiment, uh, per perfect and pure garments, and he stands before me as holy to the Lord. Today, if that's you, understand that you've been given victory. I wrote a whole book called Reclaiming Victory, and it's about living in the gospel. It's not victory about, you know, victory about 
money and all this other stuff. It's about living in victory, knowing that we're righteous in Christ. You're righteous in Christ if you've repented of your sin and you trusted Him. You can see more, all kind of things that I have about the gospel. If you go to jasonvalada.com, you can see all kind of things and all kind of free resources. And my, my main purpose in all these all these lessons, all these teachings, all these books, all these Sunday school curriculums that we do, and it's all about the gospel. If if we keep the gospel forefront in our mind, so many things, so many battles that we, we, we fight every day, I mean, they won't even have to be fought. Satan would be charging up a hill and we're standing on the other hill going, hey, you're fighting, you're fighting the wrong enemy. I'm not even, I'm not even over there. I'm righteous in Christ. And without Christ, I'm absolutely wicked. And so here what we see is, when the accuser comes, if you are a believer, understand that the Lord tells him to shut up. Why can't you tell him to shut up? Why can't you trust in what Christ has done and trust in that redemption? In myself, I'm absolutely worthless. There's nothing good about me at all. I have never done anything, never done anything good in God's sight. Not one thing. But in Christ, I'm perfect. Not because I'm righteous, but because he gave me his righteousness. Just like Joshua here, he gave me his robes for mine.